My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Every fifth episode of this podcast, we will go through the news of the past month and relate to our analysis of our past recordings. If you, as our listeners, encounter any articles relevant to our content, we would be grateful for you to share them with us at thewesternbubble at gmail.com. In this week's episode, we will specifically talk about the United Kingdom and Liz Truss, the Netherlands and immigration, the protests in Iran, and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Starting with uh, the United Kingdom, especially uh, simply because it relates so well to the ep- to our episode 12 that we did, especially on the United Kingdom. After we published this episode, Liz Truss announced unfunded tax cuts that very much benefited the rich rather than the poor. This sent the pound sterling into a nosedive and panicked the markets. This contributes to a dark cloud on the United Kingdom housing market, with homeowners increasingly struggling to pay their mortgages. Boulder, um, our concerns that we expressed in the episode on the United Kingdom became reality much faster than expected. Yes, it was uh, surprising. You had 10 days of uh, mourning for the death of Queen Elizabeth. And within a week after that, the first essentially operational week for Prime Minister Liz Truss, she managed to crash the pound and make international markets lose further faith in the United Kingdom. Um, it, it, it was a show to behold from the outside, but of course it has very serious consequences. And this is exactly what you get when, as we put it in the episode on the United Kingdom, you have a manager without the intellectual depth necessary to understand or to to fully uh, engage in the complexity of governance but a manager who has very deep intuitive ideological leanings and uh, the, the the consequences are clear yeah i i remember when we recorded the episode on the united kingdom i felt like after recording we were very harsh with list trust and i thought oh let's let's give her a chance i mean Yes, she she doesn't strike us as 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 the leader that you would you, that you might need in a situation like this, but the fact that and we were recording this on October third, the fact that she she took less than a month uh, to completely, basically disappoint any hopes uh, that there could have been into this is is astonishing. Well, the thing about this trust is that she's not an unknown quantity, right? It's not as if we started paying attention to her now that she's become prime minister. She was foreign secretary before under Boris Johnson. Did a pretty bad job at it. Um, She didn't seem to actually recognize sufficiently the seriousness of her position. She started saying things that she shouldn't be saying as foreign secretary. She didn't go down well with partners during negotiations. And on top of that, she is someone who has been quite consistent in her very boneheaded, if you like, uh, ideological approach to what government, the UK government should be doing. And she even wrote a, a book with her current Chancellor of the Exchequer about 10 years ago. I haven't read it, but a book basically laying out a very Thatcherite dark vision for uh, how she views the United Kingdom. Exactly. And so so kind of relating to Thatcher and, and Reagan, um this this reminds us of this concept of starving the beast, right? Where, yeah, yeah, it, it is. So there, there are a number of things to t- take into account here. Um, first of all, let's be clear: Thatcherite or Reaganomics has has been 
thoroughly debunked by now. Yes, you can have a conversation about how high taxes should go or how low taxes should go. If you agree that at least taxes should be at a minimum 1% and at a maximum 100%, then we've got a conversation about where in the middle we find each other. There's a serious conversation to be had. But this idea that automatically cutting taxes is going to be good for the economy because it's, it's it grows a magical pie that then everyone benefits from, right? The idea is that everyone will eat more pie even if your slice is smaller in relative terms, uh, but you will benefit from a growing economy has turned out to be complete nonsense and has led to very significant poverty issues within the Western world, within that Western bubble. And then on top of that, you've got people like Liz Trust who actually have a deep cynicism towards government. And that's where Starving the Beast comes in. Namely, the idea that we are going to have unfunded tax cuts. We are going to implement all kinds of measures that are going to put significant pressure on govern government finances in the medium and long term. So 10 years down the road, at some point, London will not be able to pay its bills anymore, essentially. And that will then force us to shrink the government. That will force us to cut social welfare, to uh, cut expenditure on the NHS or to privatize the NHS. Do all those kinds of things that maybe now politically are still difficult to accomplish. They will be needed later on because we have set a mechanism in motion that will starve the government from money. And then the only outcome will be a smaller government. This is what they're driving at. And this is exactly the opposite of what Western countries need right now. We have been cutting government's engagement with society over the past 30 years, and it's led to very significant problems. And again, this is not coming from someone who is some kind of raving communist or socialist. This is just logical looking at statistics, looking at where we have been going over the past um, decades. This has nothing to do with socialist or left-wing ideology. This is just reasonable analysis saying... A Western society, a liberal democracy without a relatively strong government is going to fail in the long term, is going to collapse, and you're going to have masses of poor people taking their pitchforks to the rich and throwing them out of their mansions. Exactly, because I mean, we, we discussed this partly in the episode, uh, the, the fall of US foreign policy, um, where you already see these effects, especially in California uh, with, with, the, with the homeless uh, crisis. And we have talked about this in the UK episode, where we mentioned that 20% um, of of all British uh, children, or, or I, I see, I'm not sure whether it was children or Brits in general uh, are now in poverty. Yeah, the, 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 of total population. This is according to government statistics, right? This is not some kind of academic somewhere coming up with a weird formula. The government themselves on their website acknowledge that one in five British people lives in poverty. That is a huge indictment for a country that has been growing its GDP, that has been growing the pie, right? That's the Reaganomics idea, that has been growing the economy further and further for decades now. But um, clearly it is not working for large segments of the population. Yeah. And and so, so the reaction to this was, uh, I mean, first, uh, I think it was the markets that reacted. First, the pound ster uh, sterling uh, nosedived, as, as I explained earlier. Um, but people were also really upset. I think that uh, the, the number was more or less that, uh, that a low-income family uh, maybe had 20, 20 pounds more at the end of the month and then uh, an, an upper-class family a lot more. At, at the end of the year, 20 pounds. So the, 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 the announcement was this is going to benefit everyone. 
but those on the poorer uh, spectrum would get 20 pounds roughly a year. Extra depends on your personal situation, of course, and there's a lot of variety, but on average, the poorest groups would get 20 pounds a year extra, whereas the richest more than 10,000 pounds a year extra. Uh, that is not the kind of tax cut, first of all, that you need in a country where there is already such significant poverty. But secondly, that from an economics perspective, and this, this would even go 1980s, Reagan economists would agree with this. Those tax cuts for the rich don't do much because they, their marginal spending is not going to go up a lot. So you give them more money, they're going to invest it in further shares. They're not going to spend it on another microwave or on a, on a car. They have enough of that. If you want to make the pie bigger, if you want to grow the economy, you need to make sure that there is higher disposable income in the hands of lower and middle class families. And, and that's not what this, these tax cuts did. So it was such an ideologically driven, badly thought out plan that it's not a surprise that uh, one trader uh, said, I, I, maybe this has, this, this has been written by more people, but at least I, I, I saw one trader being quoted saying, now the government is paying a moron, moron premium on um, their interest rate. So they have to pay a little bit more on their debt because we don't believe that they're actually capable, competent people in charge of, uh, of finances in London. And as a result... <laughs> international markets will ask the UK government to pay more than they would ask, for example, the German government, simply because they believe that the German government is more competent than the British government. Yeah, so, so, so we, we observed five days, well, at least in the United Kingdom, five days of outrage. Uh, Listras was nowhere to be seen. Uh, I remember, I mean, for, for me, it was a little bit of a side note. Um, oh, the, the pound sterling is doing a nosedive. I, I feel like in general, outside the United Kingdom, there wasn't such a big reaction to this, right? I I, I, I was um, I was amazed when I spoke, um, I had class at university and I, I spoke to my students about it. Shout out to IE. Most didn't actually know what was going on in the UK. It surprised me because we're still talking about the sixth largest economy. And we're still talking about a country that's incredibly influential in geopolitics, not like the United States or not like China, but they're they're up there in the the second rankings, right? And and so it surprises me that people weren't more engaged with what was happening there. For, see, for me, I, I I mean I don't remember the exact moment when when the news broke, uh, but it it felt like another another breaking news item in a long line of the United Kingdom struggling. I mean, it started right after they announced Brexit with. Uh, supermarket shelves being empty. Um, then you had the the, the lorry truck uh, driver crisis. Um, so 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 it just felt like you know one crisis on top of another. And ooh, it just doesn't feel like the United Kingdom is that relevant anymore. Maybe this is just me saying this as a European, because they're no longer part of the European Union. But it doesn't feel like the United Kingdom is is relevant. I think that's that's fair. It's. Not just that the UK has lost a lot of relevance for going into Brexit. We talked about this in, the, in that episode on the United Kingdom, that Brexit meant that the UK would be less influential on the world stage. I think it's also part of a very long-term decline of the UK, and people are sort of getting used to it now. If this were to happen, if this had happened in Germany, everyone would say, how can this happen in Germany? You know, uh, But this, or Switzerland, or any country that we associate with relatively stable governance. But the UK has done so many crazy things over the past two decades, really, that at some point we've become used to it, and it sort of goes off our radar screen. But as we discussed 
The United Kingdom is in many ways the symbol of that Western bubble and the decaying United Kingdom should be a warning for every Western nation, right? This is what happens when you no longer have rational policymaking going on and it all becomes ideological. Brexit was ideological based on some supposed glorious imperial past that no longer exists. Um, the, the Tory management over the past decade has been mostly ideological, not based on proper economic or social analysis of what's going on. Western societies have very, very deep problems. And if you think that tax cuts, unfunded tax cuts, especially to the rich, is gonna somehow make things better, then you're completely deluded. And so the reaction to this, again, was, was five days of, of wide anger, and there was no reaction from the trust. She was nowhere to be seen. Gone, and then when, gone. And then, and then when she... And when she finally spoke to the people, um, she did this by basically touring local radio stations, giving them each five minutes of glory. And this ties very nicely into what we discussed last week uh, on the media episode, where usually journalists are kind of constrained by this institutionalized aspect that they need to maintain a good relationship uh, to the politicians in order to, to kind of get fed breadcrumbs once in a while um, on, on an interesting story. But, <laughs> Paulder, because, because you brought this up to me... <laughs> What happened in this in these five minute bits uh, with these local radio hosts? Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating. I think the thought process must have been somewhere in Downing Street. Someone saying, "Well, if we do a half hour interview on the Today program or on on the BBC on on national BBC, then that's going to be tough because half an hour answering questions is going to be really hard." If we do those five, if we do eight five-minute shows on local radio, we this trust can just repeat the same talking points over and over again, and we'll be fine, right? That must be the thought process. But what in reality happened was exactly as you just said. These local radio hosts, they will never see List Trust in their lives. They they don't need to maintain any personal relations with List Trust. They 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 don't need any favors from the government. They don't mind being disliked by the government. They can just do their thing and. Boy, did they do their thing. I mean, they just went after her like pit bulls. And you, Liz Truss, at some point, she just fell completely silent. She didn't know what to say anymore because this is not the kind of journalism that she is uh, that she has experience with. This is not what she hears from Laura Kunzberg, for example, who she did an interview with this weekend, which was much more polite, if you like, and, 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 and less critical in tone. And the result is that these local radio stations showed us exactly what we should expect from media. Not that those five-minute segments were particularly useful in terms of content, because Liz Truss didn't have much to say, but the fact that she didn't have much to say is important information for the news. Right? The, the fact that she didn't have an answer to those critical questions gives the country information about where she's at, where the government is at. Not every interview needs to be deeply content laden if the if if the person being interviewed is basically winging it and unfortunately um, national radio and national tv don't fulfill that same journalistic duty because they need to maintain this good balance this personal relationship with politicians yeah. and then overall this this entire situation is it's just a, a very good example of the long-term decay of the united kingdom and, uh, and an example of how the elites, and I, I don't like using that word sometimes because it gets used by populists like the elites, but those people who form the policy-making bubble 
and rich donors, media, major, major media outlets, uh, politicians, how they are completely out of touch with reality, right? Local radio stations, they actually are talking to local people. People phone in and, and they, they're not these major celebrities. Local journalists can walk down the street and nobody recognizes them. So they are more in touch with what happens on the ground. You've got a decaying society, but it seems that there's this bubble, bubble of policymakers and, and intellectual as well as financial elites that not, don't really understand. They hear people are in trouble. They hear they see some statistics about poverty. They hear that there are long queues in front of food banks. But it doesn't really enter their psyche. It doesn't really enter their own psychology because they live in their own comfortable middle-class environment. And, and that has been very clearly exposed here. Now, they're, now today, on the day of recording, they've kind of done a U-turn. Um, uh, at least on the, the top rate income tax, which was only a very small part of the unfunded budget, so it doesn't actually solve many long-term problems. That is sim this, that's a symbolic gesture, but the long-term policy making does not seem to recognize that very, very deep decay that is occurring in our Western societies. And so what we observe here is kind of this path from 2015, from the voting, uh, well, from the referendum of Brexit to the actual Brexit happening, all the way over here. And so, so what are the what are the long-term dynamics that are in place here? Well, in, in many ways, many ways, I think the United States and the UK are the can canary in the coal mine, right? The, the they they should be a sign to the whole Western world of what we should not do, the mistakes we should not make. And in the UK it has clearly been accelerated because of Brexit, because they don't have any checks and balances from the outside anymore. At least the European Union, think whatever you like about the EU, but the EU does moderate extreme policy making. The EU creates checks and balances that no longer exist in the UK. And that means that a government like the current government in London can just do whatever they like, however destructive that is to their own population. So a country that still does have European checks and balances is uh, the country where you were born, the Netherlands. And to my shame, I have to admit, uh, I do not regularly keep up with the Netherlands, but you wanted to talk about it this week. Why, why is that? I'm shocked, Dario, that you uh, don't keep up with the Netherlands. You should. It's much more important than you think. What happened in the Netherlands over the... Well, many things happened in the Netherlands over the past two months, but uh, most importantly, the Dutch government proposed a um, new set of measures to stem immigration. Immigration is a very hot topic at the moment, and it has been a very hot topic for quite a while in the Netherlands. And the plan that the, the government put forward was to make it much harder to reunite families of refugees or asylum seekers. So you have a parent, a mother or a father who has been accepted as a refugee or an asylum seeker in the Netherlands then now it's becoming, according to these measures, much harder for the children to follow their parents. So to reunite the family. Beyond the basic morality of this, uh, there are lots of legal obstacles, which we'll discuss in a, in a moment, I'm sure. But for me, this is just another sign of observing my home country, my parental country, um, slide into darkness. I, I haven't lived in the Netherlands for uh, roughly 26 years now, 
And I lived there for the first 18 years of my life and then went to study in the United Kingdom. And I remember when in the United Kingdom, I uh, I was a student walking around. I was quite happy, comfortable talking about the Netherlands as a country that had a pretty good balance about being open to the world, being liberal in terms of not too much government intervention, but still also social in the, in the way that they protected the vulnerable in society, etc., etc. It, it seemed to me a country that was modern, that had the right approach to things. And over these past 26 years as an outsider, I'm seeing it year in, year out, sliding into some kind of dark moral place where the, the approach is becoming hyper-conservative towards outsiders, where there is this populist extremist movement against uh, immigrants and against the rest of the world where the Netherlands is closing itself off and pretending that its problems are caused by those outsiders whereas in reality um, the number of immigrants going into the Netherlands is much lower than in many moments in the 20th century uh, immigrants are absolutely not the reason why there are certain problems for example there's a housing crisis in Amsterdam that is not because of immigrants but it's being put onto immigrants right uh, and weirdly enough, crazily enough, at the same time that there's this anti-immigration movement in the Netherlands becoming stronger and stronger, there is a huge shortage of workers in the Netherlands, which yeah, from a policy perspective seems to contradict itself, right? If you have lots of sectors, industries that desperately require workers, and we're not talking about overly, you know, hugely skilled workers like university degrees or anything like that, just basic workers, the Netherlands needs them. If you see that and at the same time you're closing your borders, something is wrong with you. Something is going horribly badly. See, that's that's interesting um, because while I do not necessarily keep up with the Netherlands in the news, um, I did talk about the Netherlands in, in class. So I'm currently taking a class on cultural policy. And one of the aspects of cultural policy is, is education. That's one of the bigger fields where either through sending your own students abroad uh, or receiving a lot of exchange students uh, at home at your universities uh, is becoming like a, a very big policy field. And the Netherlands is a country that is very strong in that. There's a lot of courses being offered in English and um, especially especially in policy areas uh, because a lot of my, my current colleagues have studied in the, in the Netherlands for their bachelor's degree. However, in this class about cultural policy, we recently discussed that uh, the country is actually uh, taking a step back from this. Is instead of welcoming uh, welcoming young students in, it's more going back to offering courses in Dutch instead of English because of a and well, okay, to be honest, I can't really assess this, but I would say a perceived or at least a well, yeah, a, a perceived loss of culture that nobody is speaking Dutch anymore. And I think that this fits into what you described, is that there's a problem um, being put on, on outsiders, on newcomers, that maybe isn't the biggest problem. I mean, we've talked about this in the past a lot, where uh, instead of talking about your actual problems, solving the actual problems, you kind of engage in, in battles that, that aren't necessarily important uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, but more of a... Yeah, personality thing or a country's personality thing. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a huge change uh, with respect to the Netherlands that I grew up in, where in the, the Netherlands of the 1980s, 1990s, prided itself in not being overly nationalistic, not waving the flag, being open to other. I loved the fact that it was advanced with respect to its English. Now there's sort of this movement back 
to oh no we we have to speak more dutch like you said but in the universities uh, there's this sense that somehow the netherlands needs to close its doors which is, goes very much against its whole dna right the whole the, the we can we can have and i'm sure we will in the future have conversations about the neo-colonial or the colonial past of the netherlands but in essence the netherlands is a trading nation and a trading nation means that you're connected to the world and that kind of sentiment is disappearing and is being replaced by a sense of our world is very scary the, the the world around us is a danger things are going badly with respect to the environment with respect to economic upheaval and all that we have to close our gates we have to protect what we have at all cost uh, we're a small country and we're we're very rich and and we have to keep that wealth for ourselves whereas a lot of the problems that you would like to solve if you're the Netherlands are actually things that require sacrifice from the inside, have nothing to do with the outside world, so have much more to do with how you behave. For example, uh, I'm someone who lives in Madrid. Uh, in Madrid, everyone, um, rich and poor, uh, live in apartments. And so even though Spain has a lot of land, much more lands available than the Netherlands, people live in much more efficient ways. In the Netherlands, you would then hear, no, 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 but I want my garden and I want my... So Dutch people have this, this lifestyle that they're unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to give up, even though that's absolutely necessary if you want to, for example, um, deal with the housing crisis. The Netherlands is a very small geographical country. Uh, but they're not willing to do that. Instead, they look for symbolism. And that symbolism is, let's blame foreigners, let's blame immigrants, and let's make it really hard for immigrants to come into our society. Whereas your example is a perfect case of where it is actually really good policy to let foreign students come to your country. These are students, these are young, well-educated people. Some of them will stay, others will go back and will like to trade and do business with you in the Netherlands if they go back to their home countries. It makes a lot of practical, logical sense to let outside students come in. But of course, that then is more difficult to explain to the masses. It's more difficult to explain at a political level. Uh, it's, it's a bit more complex because our world is complex. And instead, we just act as if they're annoying outsiders who are taking resources away from us. And this, this has been a, a very clear process that I have observed. See, and, and on that point uh, that you just mentioned, how connected you feel to the country where you studied in, I mean, I, I think I'm a very good example of this because I studied for four years in Spain and my love for that country is eternal. And I either definitely will come back and want to work there, aka pay my taxes, or at some point I will want to have a job where hopefully I, I will be working very closely together with Spaniards. Um, and, but then, and, and, and if you were to come back to Spain, brilliant, because Spain needs people like you, obviously. Barrio, every country likes pe needs people like you. Duh. Um, but uh, even if you weren't to come back, you are much more likely, let's say that you go into government or let's say that you go into business, you're much more likely to be open to working with Spain, which would be hugely advantageous to Spain, right? It, it, it's not difficult to comprehend. It just requires politicians to lay out a little bit more of a complex narrative rather than the simplistic us versus them idea. And so how was this different in the 1990s? Because, I mean, these policies, I want to call them open door policies, they must, I mean, they, they must have originated uh, in some period or at some point. Yeah, so what is very interesting here is that I remember in the years before I left, there was a very small 
party called the Centrum Democrats, uh, Centrum Democrats in Dutch. Uh, it's a very small party in the Netherlands that were on the fringe, were the extreme right at that time. At most, if I remember correctly, they got two seats in parliament in one election and then they lost them again. Two seats out of 150, so a tiny fragment of the population voted for them. And they were dismissed by the whole country, essentially, um, as being morally wrong, morally reprehensible. These people, you know, surely a basic tenet of any moral society is be open to outsiders, be open to your neighbor. Surely that every religion in the world, I mean, I'm not religious, but every religion in the world emphasizes the importance of opening your house to guests, right? That is such an important part of what humanity is about. So in those days, that party was morally rejected by the country. But also people understood that it just didn't make any sense what they were saying, that it was just way too simplistic rhetoric and that those people who voted for them didn't really think things through. Those, those were people who weren't happy with how things were going, but they didn't really understand or didn't want to understand the actual potential solutions. Instead, it was much easier to just blame people with a different skin color, for example. Fast forward um, 10 years later and now to 2022, and that language that was rejected so thoroughly by the Netherlands in the 1990s is now the language of mainstream politicians, not the extreme fringe. I mean, the extreme parties have many more seats in parliament, but even just the mainstream government parties use language that is very reminiscent of the language used by those extremes in the 1990s. So sort of the extreme from 25 years ago has now become... Uh, mainstream and that should scare all of us and I follow um, the Dutch news through mostly teletext and a few Dutch newspapers well, um, what is that you have to explain it to, to <laughs> good old teletext well not to the, me I know this about you but to the younger generation it's, it's 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 the best form of news communication just the way we did it before the internet you just click on a page on your tv you know we had like internet before the internet on tv and there it would then have the news and you click on 101 and you get uh, everything that's happening in the world on one small page. Anyway, very practical. Uh, I can recommend it to everyone, but I think that the Netherlands is one of the last countries that has it. For, I know, for example, that in the UK, they've done, it, done away with it. It's brilliant. People should really try that. I read, a, a, before anything in newspapers, I read about an opinion poll a month ago or so. And it, it was in reaction to this government plan of making reunification of immigrant families more difficult. And the news item was 61% of the population supports it. So then I started looking into it and I, I read more about it. And I thought, and my reaction was, oh yeah, I knew it was bad, but it's a shame that it is this bad. That 61% of the population believes that this kind of insanely strict anti-immigration policy is both moral somehow, or people just don't care about morality anymore, I don't know. And somehow is actually solving anything. So I was depressed by that. But I thought, well, at least 39%, you know, maths, 39% uh, of the population still, you know, is still principled and still understands that this is not where the solutions lie. But then I looked into it and it turned out that of the remaining 39%, only 6% was actually saying that it should be less strict. The rest was actually believed that it wasn't strict enough. So for me, that was like a shattered dream of how can I still be Dutch? How can I still have a passport from the from this country that not only is 
has apparently completely forgotten about basic morality and the basic responsibility we all have about the world we live in, but secondly, has forgotten about practical solution finding, about solution solutions to the real problems rather than lame and empty symbolic rhetoric that actually doesn't accomplish anything except that it leads to human hardship all around the world, right? Um, it was just a very depressing kind of moment for me where I thought, yeah, I really have very little in common with this country anymore. And it's so sad to have seen it slide in this direction. And for me, that it's, it's a very good example of how we start more and more building up this bubble around us of a decaying society. And I mean, so, so there's a, obviously a, like a bigger picture uh, reason why we're talking about this topic. And um, specifically because we said uh, just a few minutes ago that uh, you do no longer have these European Union checks and balances uh, in the UK. However, you do still have them in the Netherlands, uh, luckily. Um, I mean, maybe there will be an exit soon. Um, but so, so then uh, luckily the Europe, well, I mean, yes, I would say we can say luckily the European Union that intervened. Yes, exactly. So straight away when the government presented this, there were both scholars from within the Netherlands, uh, legal analysts, and the European Union who said, hang on, this goes against basic human rights. We did an episode about basic human rights, and we know that the EU has integrated some of the principles of human rights into their own lawmaking. The Netherlands has as well. So people both within the Netherlands said, hang on, this goes against the basic legal system that we've put in place and the European Union said if you internally don't solve this then we as the European Union have a problem with with this because this is not how you're allowed to run your country anymore rightfully so right and so this is a good case where you have the Netherlands being limited in its extreme behavior by broader mechanisms and that's that's very good that's that's a good thing and so this kind of goes back to our third episodes on the hollowing out of institutions, where we already found out that a lot of the good foundations of Western society come from the, uh, well, 19th and 20th century. And this is one of those, you know, there's like these checks and balances uh, there. And then a lot of the newer developments from the 21st century are not necessarily as healthy. That's, that's exactly right. So we've got, in many ways, a society that is riding off the coattails of the previous generations. And... I'm not saying that this current generation, we as a society right now are doing everything wrong. There are lots of things we do really well, of course. But over the past 100 and 150 years, you see a clear evolution of this Western society building up slowly and not perfectly. It never was perfect, not even in the 1990s, but slowly over time, building up strong pillars on which you can grow and on which you can prove to history that Western liberal democracy is actually worthwhile, is actually something that offers practical solutions as well as, if you like, moral solutions uh, to the world. And uh, many of the things that are still going well nowadays in our societies are because of that. Whereas at the same time, the 21st century is chiseling away at those foundations, is slowly eroding the 20th century foundations. And, and the immigration crisis talk, and we should ask ourselves, Crisis, what crisis? The only crisis is because we make it a crisis, not because there are all of a sudden millions and millions of immigrants more going into Europe. In fact, there are fewer immigrants going into Europe than most of the 20th century or second half of 20th century. Um, this immigration crisis talk is a really good example of that, where we are forgetting about the society we were building up and we're just 
starting to undermine the basic foundations of that society. Moving on to the next topic we want to discuss. Uh, protests have, uh, have erupted in Iran following the death of a young woman in moral police custody that have started two weeks ago. The government reacted uncompromisingly and forcefully putting down protests and imposed internet restrictions. I think it's important to mention that all of this was about uh, this woman not wearing her hijab properly and then the moral police uh, basically arresting her in, in, in police custody. Uh, she then died. And uh, I think here, I mean, we can obviously rate this a little bit to our episode number two, uh, where we talked about Iran in general, uh, while we focused more on, on the Iran nuclear deal, um, and to the media episode uh, from last week, uh, because, and this is actually the part I want to start with, what, what has annoyed me a lot um, is that every time uh, the media mentions the uh, moral police, um, that they put it in quotation marks, or they say, or they say the so-called moral police. And, and this, to me, is just, it's immediately framing it, right? This is what the Western media does. It, it puts moral in quotation marks because it wants to show that they know who is right and who is wrong. And the idea that the moral police can actually be moral in any way, can show any morality, uh, is rejected by Western media. Whereas, of course, this is a very gray area and it's not up to reporters, up to journalists to decide who is right and who is wrong here. It is this idea of fact-checking, which in certain cases might make sense internally, domestically. When a politician tells a lie, it's good to fact-check. Then again, lies are typically ambiguous, right? It's hardly ever possible to really pinpoint where the lie is. But certainly when it comes to something broadly ambiguous, like the morale police, which is just a name that the Iranian authorities have given this police force, in that in that situation, it is not up to Western media to take a stance there. They, they should report and they should analyze the situation. Instead, they say, haha, look how terribly backward they are and look how delusional this regime is and uh, we will expose it for you. See, the, the, this would be the same as, as me talking about the United States Supreme Court and every time I mention it, I put supreme in quotation marks. So the United States Supreme Court... Uh, kind of undermining the entire point. Um, but then moving on more to the bigger picture, I mean, apart from the fact that, that obviously I'm pretty sure both of us have all the sympathies in the world for this young for this young woman that died and for, for anyone who's expressing their feelings in protests, what I'm seeing very critically here is that immediately, and this this kind of goes back to the episode we episode 13 we did on uh, Ukraine and the media where we criticize that immediately the Western media speculates about Putin falling or there's re regime change happening in Russia. This exact same happens here. So it's the, the coverage of the protest goes very quickly from a young woman died. This is not good. She died in police uh, custody for, ex for, for, for these reasons. And it turns very quickly to, oh, these protests are growing and they have the potential to, to seriously alter the regime in Iran. And this is then done with, without actually like kind of questioning what this would entail, what this means. It, it very quickly goes into, we don't like this regime and it needs to be gone. Well, because it is based on this foundational intuitive idea that's deeply ingrained in, in the West, and certainly in Western media, is that all those regimes, Iran, North Korea, China, Russia, are all about to be toppled over. They're all about, if, if it was weren't for those 
pesky dictators in charge, or Ayatollah in the case of Iran, then Iran would be a thriving liberal democracy like us. So we're just waiting for the moment for that to happen. Whereas in reality, of course, let's say, which I don't believe it's necessarily very likely, but let's say that tomorrow uh, the, the current government and the current state of Iran would fall. That doesn't mean that that automatically leads to a liberal Western Eurocentric kind of government government apparatus. The, the Iran will choose its own path. And yet we perceive those moments, those moments of crisis in Russia, in Iran and elsewhere as moments that we're very close to liberal democracy because that's what we know to be the best. That's what we think is the solution for humanity. And, and the, the obstacle is apparently just a few people at the top and society is hungry to be free. Well, newsflash, Iranian society will not in any way want to copy the Netherlands or the United Kingdom or Spain the moment that the Ayatollah leaves office. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And it is a shocking example of our bubble mentality, right? Where we can't, we, we can't see through that. And it very much, by the way, reminds me, you're a bit maybe too young for that, but of the Arab Spring in 2011, which, which where all of a sudden in the Middle East and in the Maghreb region, there were these movements, these populist movements to overthrow authoritarian regimes. Uh, Tunisia was at the forefront, but there were Egypt, there's not, there were a lot of... And the West jumped on it, and NGOs and governments started funding all these civil um, society movements. Uh, Western newspapers and CNN were talking about it for weeks in a row. Look, the masses rising up to freedom. Well, look, 10 years later, what's happened? I mean... Not much in the sense of it them turning into a Western liberal democracy because the world doesn't look at the West as their final solution. See, when it comes to the, and here I'm going to do what the media usually does because I do this in all my essays, the so-called Arab Spring, because it's it's an inherently Western idea of the of the Arab Spring. Uh, this, this was an example I wanted to bring up as well because there, there seems to be this romanticized idea of, of a revolution. Um, well, well, there are very few revolutions in history that actually have, have turned out to be peaceful in the short term. I mean, we we, uh, we saw it in Egypt where, yes, there were elections right after uh, Mubarak was ousted, but then very quickly uh, the, the the military took over. And you, you, you have this pattern all over the place. And so, so this type of attitude than, 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 than the Western media, or the Western general, the Western bubble of... Exactly, they're just one step away from turning into a democracy, and we we need to aid them. Um, this this to me is hypocritical and and hurtful because it it does raise these expectations of having an, an another Arab Spring. And then, of course, the word "spring" comes from the Prague Spring of nineteen sixty eight, where which was a Cold War mentality, which was very much again this idea, right? Like, oh, the people on the other side of the. Uh, east uh, of the, of the div divide between Western and Eastern Europe, they're about to be free, and the Prague Spring was a movement against the communist authorities, and we jumped on that. Now, that has been sort of set the tone for this idea that everywhere around the world, anyone who isn't like us is longing to be free, and it's a, it's a horrible way of perceiving the world. See, yeah, because now I have to go back to Egypt, simply because, uh, I mean, throughout my studies, I've, I've looked at the Middle East a lot, um, and what 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 I always what I always really liked uh, about the elections in Egypt in 2012 is there were free democratic elections. Well, I mean, according to Egyptian standards, 
And the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the, the the party that, that they um, offered uh, at the at the elections, they actually won. And this and this then immediately had a negative reaction in the West because the Muslim Brotherhood is something that we in the West see as something negative and something oh that's that's too much political Islam, completely ignoring that it has that it had been a grassroots movement in Egypt for over seventy years, simply filling the void left by the government, and then people were simply voting for them that they liked the most. And then, ah, yeah, it, Egypt, yes, you did your democracy right, but you did it wrong because you voted for the wrong result. Like that attitude, and, I, and this, is, this is what I always want to, want to ask people, what do you expect will happen in Iran after? It's still a predominantly very conservative country, especially religi uh, religiously. And in any case, it's not a Western country, you know, whether it's conservative or not, it, it, it is not, it doesn't follow the European path. It doesn't follow the North American path. And, and that is one of the biggest errors of our Western bubble to believe that there's one prototype of humanity, I don't know, uh, symbolized by a young, independent, professional woman in her 30s walking around in Sweden or, you know, or walking around in Canada. And that that is the, the type of humanity that everyone wants to follow at some point in their historical path. And of course, that is not a realistic interpretation of humanity. It's not how humanity works. It, it, your example of Egypt in 2012 reminds me of the Palestinian authorities of 20, uh, 2006. So there were these elections broadly sponsored by the West because this was the post 9-11 and the, the world was about to... Um, to sort of reorder a little bit after the initial reaction uh, of the war on terror and all that, and broadly supported there were elections in the Palestinian Authority in Palestinian territories for uh, the Palestinian legislative that then from which then the Palestinian Authority comes, and everyone was extremely happy about oh look finally Palestine is becoming a state and they 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 can now uh, organize the, themselves and they don't. They, they won't be interfered with from the outside because they can arrange their own um, political and institutional system. What happens? Hamas wins those elections with a landslide. And the day after Hamas wins, the West says, ah, yeah, but these elections are not real elections. They can't be real because there's no way the Palestinians would, would vote for Hamas. There's something really off and we cannot recognize this authority. We cannot recognize these people as the representatives of the Palestinians. Completely forgetting that... In the West, we always talk about Hamas as the terrorist organization, the people fighting Israel, um, you know, together with Hezbollah, shooting rockets into Israeli territory and all that kind of thing. But the reality for Palestinians was in those days that Hamas was investing in hospitals, was sponsoring social projects at home. And that's what the Palestinians saw. And so they were very happy to have leadership coming from Hamas. But the West would not recognize that because it wasn't the image that we had created for them. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, uh, so we did get a little bit sidetracked uh, from, from Iran itself, but it does follow it does follow the same the same pattern. And I think then then with this, we can actually move on to, to the last topic we want to discuss today, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, um, because that over the past month, Ukraine has continued its advances against the Russian army, taking control of uh, Liman recently. However, in the meantime, the Russian president Putin has announced a partial mobilization of uh, reservists to, to counter Ukrainian efforts and the annexation of four regions in eastern Ukraine. And here I'm going to, 
to talk again about uh, uh, what I just criticized with regards to the media coverage of Iran is in Iran it was always there were always quotation marks put on on the moral police. However, when it comes to the annexation, there's always this pretext of illegal annexation. Yeah, once again, I, I've read this so many times over the past uh, week or so. The whenever the annexation gets mentioned, the journalist feels the need to put a word like that, illegal or something like that, in front of it. And take a step back. Illegal based on what exactly? Uh, international law is not really a practical uh, tool here. It's not something we can use. Uh, completely unrecognized by the international community, sure. Uh, we all know that this is a bit of nonsense, this annexation. It doesn't make any sense. It is basically a tool that Putin uses um, to strengthen his arguments to legitimize his behavior and to be able to say oh be careful because now you're actually moving into russian territory and we can actually defend ourselves whereas before it was still vaguely defined as ukrainian territory so from putin's perspective right so it it is a a tool that that obviously doesn't have any clear legitimacy or international support that putin uses in the current war okay fine but it's not up to a journalist to put the word illegal there, and yet that's exactly what they do. They feel that they need to fact-check this. They, they feel that they're, they're, they need to tell the reader that this isn't a real annexation. Well, but what would be a legal annexation then? Please, please explain that to me and explain how that would work. If the international community, if the UN um, supports it, Okay, um, not that hasn't happened many times in life. Uh, how, what would that actually look like? And then at least say unsupported by the United Nations or unsupported by the global community. That's fine. But the word illegal seems to suggest a factual basis that the journalist doesn't have. So apart from the annexation, we also had then the partial mobilization where 300,000, I think this number that always went around, um, Members of the of the Russian reserves uh, were were mobilized to partake in in the in the Ukraine war. What is that telling us about kind of the state of what's happening? That Putin is in serious trouble. That that Russia is in serious trouble, and this is completely obvious. The reason why so many people did not believe that Putin would actually and the Kremlin would actually invade Ukraine was that it was so obviously an incredibly dangerous project from a Russian selfish perspective, right? It just, it was military strategists all around the world in January last year were saying you need at least 400,000 troops to invade Ukraine if you're Russia. And right now they only have, we're talking about um, February, in February you, you only have 150,000 troops. So there's no way that you can invade the whole of uh, Ukraine. And the moment, the day that Russia did invade with those limited amounts of troops, apparently overconfident of what would happen next was the moment that you knew that Putin had made a huge mistake, a huge blunder. And this was discussed straight away. I mean, I discussed it in class with my students and uh, it was completely clear to anyone who, were, who was just observing and analyzing the situation is that Putin blundered. And now he's trying to, you know, he's trying to mitigate the damage by mobilizing but that has all kinds of horrible consequences for him at home i mean horrible from his personal perspective because it means that his political legitimacy legitimacy at home gets undermined it actually puts a lot more emphasis on 
quick success because the moments those reservists are going to get killed or injured in the war is the moments that the Russians will rise up somehow in some way. It, it clearly shows that this war is going very, very badly for Putin. And that in combination with the territorial gains of Ukraine over the past few weeks, and, and knowing that this mobilization will only have any effect if it does have any effect in two or three months' time, because first, all those reservists have to be equipped. They, they, there are apparently not enough weapons to give to them. There is no logistical apparatus in place to actually move them to the front. It's going to take a very long time for the, them to get there. And knowing that a lot of young men are trying to avoid it by fleeing to other countries or by injuring themselves and that kind of thing, it is very, very clear that things are looking bleak for the Kremlin. And that is in itself good news for uh, Ukraine. And it is good news for a global community that believes in the Westphalian system. But we have to be very, very careful here because what happens if things go right for Putin in Moscow? What happens if there's some kind of palace coup? Or what happens if there's some kind of populist uprising? Again, it's not going to turn Russia into a thriving Western liberal democracy. And with this, uh, going to the last part we want to cover when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, we want to talk about Zelensky, because Zelensky has, has, has gotten a little bit quiet around him in the past few months. However, uh, just this week, uh, he openly uh, advocated or apply, applied for fast-tracking of NATO accession. Yeah, so what you see then in the Western bubble mentality is that journalists and politicians and the general population don't think, yeah, that's that's reasonable. Look, Ukraine is winning right now. I mean, the reaction would be very different if Ukraine was losing. But now everyone wants to be on the side of a winner. And it seems that Ukraine is winning or at least winning in in, in tactical terms. Um, it, 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 Ukraine obviously is doing very well on the front in, in making a lot of progress. And so the reaction is, yeah, um, look, Ukraine has shown that they are a strong military force. They can stand up. We have supported them. This has been a good partnership with Western weapons coming into Ukraine. And more important than weapons, by the way, Western intelligence, right? NATO NATO intelligence about what where the Russians are and what they're doing. And so it makes sense for Ukraine to integrate into that. Instead, our first reaction should be, why... In heaven's name, are you right now talking about integration into NATO when there is no way that you could become part of NATO while there is a conflict, open or frozen, but as long as there's a conflict with Russia, you cannot enter NATO because that would lead to World War III. That's, that should be your first reaction. So please don't talk about that right now. Talk about it later down the line. And secondly, it shows our lack of analysis of how we got here in the first place look what the west did and what nato did was more and more putting putin but not just putin russian strategists russian policymakers into a corner building a big fence nato fence around russian sphere of influence and this goes back to the conversation we had in a previous episode about the difference between provocation and justification russia was never justified with respect to their invasion of Ukraine. They weren't. They shouldn't have done it. It was wrong of them. And they need to be kicked out of Ukraine. But it wasn't unprovoked. NATO absolutely has been provoking the Russians. And the reason why we don't seem to understand that in the West. Is that we look at it from ourselves. And we think we are peaceful society. We don't want to do anything wrong to anyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're building all those 
we're, we're militarizing the border around the Russian sphere of influence. We're, we're absolutely limiting Russian geopolitics, while we at the same time have military bases all around the world and start wars whenever we like. But we're peaceful people. We don't want to do the Russians any harm. Of course, Putin has nothing to worry about. It is this weird blindness to our own behavior on the international stage. And it is this expansion of NATO and this aggressive behavior by Western countries that certainly made it more likely for Russia to invade Ukraine. And now we're all of a sudden acting as if, yeah, it's perfectly all right, the idea to continue this process, not learning from our mistakes in the past. Next, I mean, let's assume for a second, it's not going to happen, but let's assume for a second that Ukraine were to enter NATO. What do you think China is going to do? What do you think India is going to do? Are they going to be happy about this? Of course not. They are going to look at this world and say, what is happening here? How can the West get away with these aggressive foreign policy steps over and over again? And this seems like a great moment to end today's uh, recap episode. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Very much in line with the Western bubble, I thought it would be a good idea to read out the three maxims that were written on the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. Know thyself, nothing in excess, surety brings ruin.